0: Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where the Bible is opened and explained. Christians are encouraged and Christ is lifted up. Thank you for joining us and may your hearts be blessed as God's word is taught. And now, enjoy this message from Pastor Lauren Regeer. Have your Bibles, please. Let's start in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Great to have you here. Thank you so much for your attendance on this beautiful day. The sun did come out. We're grateful. That the Lord's in control of the weather, I'm grateful for the fact that He's in control of all things. Amen. Amen. And we're thankful for this time, Easter Sunday, to celebrate His resurrection from the dead. Uh, early church, when they met, they would meet each other post, post-resurrection with this little greeting, Christ the Lord is risen. And then they would respond by saying, He is risen indeed. So let's try that this morning. I'll do the first part. Christ the Lord is risen. I'll give you about a B minus on that. Let's try that one more time. Christ the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. That's a little better. Amen. And he is. Trust that you know him as your Lord and Savior. Great statements of faith. You're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's read some of these verses together. Follow along as I read. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 beginning with verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. Here it is in a nutshell. I preached this unto you, which ye have also received, and wherein ye stand, by which ye are also saved. This is the gospel that saves us. If ye keep in memory what I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Paul isn't making this up. He received this from the Lord, first ten, How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he rose again the third day. How? According to the scriptures. That he was seen of Cephas or Peter, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of five hundred brethren at one time, once. Of whom the greater part remain alive unto this present, but some are fallen asleep in death. After that he was seen of James, half-brother of Christ, and of all the disciples or apostles. And at last, probably in Arabia, he was seen of me also as one, born out of due time. For I'm the least of the apostles, that and I'm not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul, of course, started out as a murderous attacker of the church, violent. But by the grace of God, <laughs> I am what I am. That would be all of our testimonies, wouldn't it be? And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preached, and so ye believed. We'll start with a little story this morning. We just had a wonderful time with the children in our children's activity. It's always a blessing. I don't get to spend much time with the children as I pastor, but when I do, it's always a great blessing. I love children. The story is told about little Philip. Philip was handicapped, not just Bodily, but mentally a bit as well. He was about eight years of age, and and the story is told about his teacher, very creative lady, helped the group of eight-year-olds understand biblical truths. They learned together, they laughed together, they played together as kids do. They really cared about one another, even though eight-year-olds don't really say they care about each other that much out loud. The teacher could see it, and she could tell it, and she knew it. She knew that uh, Philip was not really a part of the group due to his handicaps, but he didn't choose, nor did he want to be different. He just was. And that's the way things were with Philip. Well, the teacher had a great idea for his class the Sunday before Easter, and she uh, got some ideas together about collecting big plastic eggs. And she got each of her class members, even Philip, one of these plastic containers or plastic eggs. The children loved it. Great big eggs, 10 of them. And the children were excited to know what was going to happen. It was a beautiful spring day when she brought them in. The assignment was for each of the children. This is where I got the idea this morning for our own kids. To take, take the egg and go outside in the spring air and to pick up something in the yard around the church and school that looked like a sign of life. And so out they went, giggling and laughing, excited about the project. They ran all over the church grounds, gathering their symbols of life, and returned to the classroom. Philip was helped along, pushed along in his wheelchair, but he involved, got involved as well. And they all came back in, curious, giggling, and they began to open them one at a time to see what were the signs of life collected outside in the playground. Well, there was one that opened his, and it was a flower. They all oohed and awed. We got a lot of that this morning, little flowers. In fact, one of our kids brought in a snail. That was fun. But uh, they all opened up their different plastic eggs, as the story goes, and one after another. One brought a beautiful butterfly. The girls oohed and awed. There was uh, one boy that brought in a rock, (laughs) and they kind of said, what's that all about? And he said, well, wasn't there a, a rock at the tomb? And Certainly, there was a big, uh, a big tombstone that went over the front of the tomb, and and the third graders began to laugh and chuckled, and and then finally it came to Philip's egg, and and they opened it up, and <laughs> nothing. Well, all the kids began to murmur and complain. Philip, he just didn't get it. Of course, he had challenges, and Philip. Felt like he was a little bit embarrassed by that. and You don't do anything right, Philip quipped one of the kids in the classroom. There's nothing in your egg. You didn't put anything in there. I did so do it, Philip said. I did do it. It's empty because the tomb <laughs> is empty. The whole class became silent, very silent. And then from then on, Philip began to... Kind of fit in a little more. He became a part of that group of eight-year-old children. They took him in. Philip died the next summer. His family had known since the time he was born that he wouldn't live out a full life. Many other things had been wrong with his tiny little body. So late in July, with an infection that most kids would have overcome, quickly shrugged off, Philip succumbed to and died of. At the funeral, nine eight-year-old children marched up to the altar near the casket, and instead of flowers to cover the dark and stark reality of death, nine, eight-year-old kids, with their Sunday school teacher, marched right up to that altar and laid upon it and on the casket area, empty plastic eggs as a sign of life. Did you know, dear beloved Christians, that it is what was not in the tomb? that identifies us more than what was in it. Christ rose from the dead, and because there is that empty tomb, we are here because of what it did not contain on that Easter Sunday. In Paul's day, there was a little motto. Of course, we've um, mentioned one of the mottos that the early church mentioned, but to the unbelievers in Athens, there was even a sign posted in the courtyards. It said this, Once a man dies, and the ground drinks of his blood, there is no resurrection. How empty, how futile that is. But is that it? Is that it? Is it over when we die? Is that the last chapter for us and then there's nothing? The Greeks certainly believed that. Well, Paul was so convinced the gospel included the reality of a resurrected Lord that he said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15 and Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are what? We are of all men most miserable. If you know the Christ that's living today, you have great hope. And he answers the question, verse 20, and with a great declarative statement, but now Christ is risen from the dead, right? Become the first fruits of them that slept. What a blessed response that is. What a glorious response. Uh, There's a man that used to, years ago, um, be a professor at Harvard, Simon Greenleaf. Harvard Law said this, according to the laws of legal evidence used in courts of law, there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than than just for about any other event in human history. He went on to say this, and I think this is good. A person who rejects Christ... May choose to say that I do not accept it, but he cannot say there is not enough evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Today, with your permission, I'd like to share quickly seven great statements of faith that we find in the Bible. There are incredible, incredible proofs from us texts that we've just read, there are incredible proofs of the resurrection. And I I know that the greatest proof of all is the fact that Christ lives in you. And that there there is a transformation that's taken place in your life. I know one great preacher that says this. He says, I no longer ask people, have you prayed a prayer somewhere along the way? Have you signed a card somewhere along the way? He says, I ask people, are there any signs of life that Christ has changed you? Is there any sign of life in you? What a great question that is. Great statements, incredible proofs, the chain of proofs, the evidence that Jesus is alive. Thanks to the, thanks to the Romans, and thanks uh, to the Sanhedrin, when Jesus died on that cruel cross and they put him in a grave, they did everything imaginable to their power to prove That the case for Christ was closed. that The last chapter was written. That they would never hear from him again. What did they do? Well, they placed him in a tomb. It was a borrowed tomb. There was no other body in there except for his. Did you know that? This was a new tomb hewn out by Joseph of Arimathea and he gave it, deeded it to Christ and his followers. There was not another body in there. And so They sealed it with a stone. Do you know how heavy that stone was? I talked about the little boy that picked up a little rock. The stone that closed off the tomb. Historians tell us that in that time, in that age, uh, often the tombs were enclosed with big boulders or stones that lay in a channel or a groove in front of the cave in which bodies were entombed that often weighed from one to three tons and this particular stone in front of Jesus' tomb was not only pushed there somehow by a group of men after he was placed in that tomb, but the, uh, the Sanhedrin remembered even more carefully than the disciples of Christ himself. The Sanhedrin remembered that he said after three days he would rise again. So they went to Pilate and said, Pilate, with your permission, would you please seal the tomb? And so there was two wax seals connected by a cord or a rope with Pilate's ring signature in wax that meant this is a sealed tomb. No one's getting in or no one's coming out. (laughs) And so then the the, the disciples, excuse me, the uh, Sanhedrin, afraid that perhaps someone would pirate or uh, try to open the tomb without permission, They said, would it be okay, Pilate, if you guarded the tomb for at least three days? Because we heard that after three days he might rise again. We want to make this thing secure, sealed, and done. So they asked for a quaternion. Anybody know what a quaternion of soldiers is? That's four of the elite guard to stand taking turns, four at a time, in front of this tomb so that there would be no pilfering, no, no, no activity that would somehow remove Jesus, this wonderful teacher, from the grave. So thanks to the Sanhedrin and thanks to the Romans, this situation was beyond suspicion. They guarded the tomb. They had two stamped official wax anchors that officially told everybody, this tomb is sealed, never to be opened by others. Guarded by an elite guard at the request of Jerusalem elders who remembered the prophecies that said he may rise again in three days. So here we have our first witness, really. It is the statement of evidence at the early tomb sometime early Sunday morning. However, this two-ton stone was lifted out of the ditch or canal that held it in place. It was probably because of this great earthquake that shook the ground early Sunday morning. And the soldiers, the Bible tells us, fell down as dead men. The Lord, who could not be contained by the grasp of sin, death, or hell, would not be contained by this little tomb, nor by the grave clothes. Did you know that there were 70 to 80, some say up to 100 pounds, of linen wrapped with spices that they, that they would put around the body of the deceased? It would help with the smell of decay. And when the tomb was opened, the word of God, uh, there was an interesting sight. We talked about that at the early morning service, the sunrise service, because when John stopped, he looked inside. The word is to observe. Peter crashed on in. They saw that the tomb was empty, and Peter went on in, and the word that is used for what Peter saw was to scrutinize in the Greek, to look at. And he saw the cocoon shape with no body in it, just the linen clothes that were wrapped around the body. And then he saw, the Bible says, the head clothes, the linen napkins that were wrapped around his head in a separate place by themselves. There is no grave robber that could even extract a body like that. To take a body out of these grave clothes and leave it in a cocoon shape, there would be no grave robber that would ever do that. And then to take the time to separate the head clo- and fold them there. And so we see the evidence beginning to mount as the body and Peter was wondering, so was John as they left the scene, Matthew 12, excuse me, 24 and verse 12. They said the, the evidence was mounting, and then there was a not, not only evidence around the tomb, there was the statement of two angels. Luke chapter 24, if you would be kind enough to follow me there, Luke chapter 24, I enjoy reading there. Every one of the Gospels has the account of the resurrection. And verses four through eight, if you'll just follow in your Bible as I read, Luke chapter 24, verse four, and it came to pass as they were much perplexed. I mentioned John and Peter and even the girls confused about where is Jesus? Behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. These were angels that in the place of the elite Roman guard, who were now as dead men, (laughs) the two angels were seated there. And and, uh, they had an announcement. They were afraid, not the angels, but those that were approaching the tomb, the disciples. And they bowed down their faces to the earth, and they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? Did you know, if these disciples had been paying attention, On Thursday, the Lord said, I will be buried, and I will rise again the third day. He had mentioned this a number of times. Did you know in heaven, in heaven where these angels came from, the new guards of the tomb, there was no discussion, there was no confusion about where Jesus was. They knew. Why is it that we who have the privilege of reading the Bible, can't remember his words. And we get fearful, and we get afraid. Instead of taking spices to the tombs, these ladies should have been taking songbooks. <laughs> this was a day of praise, had they been paying attention. But it, the, the angels, they ask him, why do you seek the living? Why are you in the cemetery? He's not here. Verse 6, where is he? He's He's risen. Remember how he spake to you when he was with you yet in Galilee. He spoke these things earlier, Luke chapter 9, verse 22. He had already told them what would happen. But you know, before we get too hard on these disciples, we got to remember that we too have a hard time remembering, paying attention to what God says. Anybody like that? I am. I read a promise and I forget a promise. And so here he is saying, you should have known how he spake to you. When you, was, when, we, when you were yet in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered to the hands of sinful men, be crucified. And then the third day, repeat those words with me, what? Third day, rise again. In verse 8, seems like the light came on then. They remembered his words. So there is the obvious evidence around the empty tomb. There's the open tomb. There's the, the, really the scattered soldiers. Uh, There is the empty grave clothes, the vacated grave clothes, and all the evidences of a resurrection. And you see that, and then you also hear the statement of the the angels themselves, very clear, he is not here, for he is risen just as he said, Why are you weeping, Mary? Why do you seek the living among the dead? This is not a day for tears. The Son of Man, don't you remember, he said that he will... Die, be crucified for sinful men, and the third day, rise again. I love that song we sing on Easter Sunday. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty conquest o'er his foes. He arose the what? The victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. Hallelujah. Did you know that the coming of Christ was prophesied? The death of Christ was prophesied. It's all through the Bible. And did you know that the resurrection of Christ is prophesied? Yes. It is. Uh, Psalm 16 tells us about that. Psalm 22 tells us about that. And then we also note that the coming again, the resurrection is prophes- and the coming again of Jesus is prophesied. This, was, this should not have been a surprise to the disciples, but it must certainly have been amazing and unusual This is the only reference of a self-resurrection. There has been others listed in the Bible where the power of God, a prophet, has raised some from the dead, but one who has said, I will rise again the third day by my own power. This is the only occurrence of that in all of history. So there's the statement of proof from the angels. There's a statement of evidence around. There's a statement of faith by the witnesses. Uh, I've already mentioned this, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you need not turn there. We've read those verses. But Peter there, and Paul, excuse me, Paul says, Peter saw it, James saw him alive, the disciples all saw him alive, and then there was a time when Jesus post-resurrection was teaching and preaching, and 500 people saw him alive at the same time. They couldn't all have been hallucinating At the same time, and so we see that uh, eyewitness, both then and now, is one of the strongest statements of corroboration of truth, and uh, you know that there was this record of the validity of his resurrection. Fear not, the angel said, fear not, I am he that liveth. The Lord said later in the book of Revelation, I am he that liveth was dead, behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys. I should have somebody with a big old set of keys just stand up in the midst. Of and just write. You know what that sounds like? Jesus says, I hold the keys of, of, of hell and death. I've overcome all these things, Revelation chapter 1, 17 and 18. So there is this wonderful statement of faith Of the two angels, there's a statement of faith of the eyewitnesses. We see this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 6. All these men in a row and all those folks saw him. What a strong statement of faith that is. And then, I like this one. There was a statement of the scars. The statement of the scars. Turn to John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 20. There could have been no confusion about who this was. Although on the road to Damascus, or excuse me, Emmaus, the Lord came beside two that were walking along and they were confused he, and the Lord didn't reveal who he was but he was just walking along and he came up upon two sad discouraged disciples who had of course witnessed his death and, and know that he was knew that he was put in a tomb and they were just discussing the events recently of the death of their beloved master, the Lord Jesus Christ and they were really bemoaning the fact that they had put him in the de- in the grave and There was that silent Saturday as God was just waiting on the Sabbath, the right time. And they were so discouraged. Maybe you're living in that period of time in your life where you don't see the promises of God. You're a bit discouraged by life. And and they were just talking about these things, how sad they were. And Jesus kind of comes up beside them on the Emmaus Road. Remember that? And there he asked them the question, tell me, what's going on? I think that's one of the most amazing statements in all the Bible. What's going on? And they began to tell him about the death of Christ, their beloved master. And he begins to do what? He starts in the Old Testament and unpacks and unfurls all the testaments, all the different prophecies about his coming, his birth, I'm sure, even his death and then his resurrection. And he got to their house and he sat down and all of a sudden the the, the shades of their eyes are open. They know who he is. Their hearts begin to do what? to burn within them as they realize this one, <laughs> this one who's not told us who he is, is the Christ. Their eyes are opened, And then there's that one holdout. There's one in every group. And his name, of course, is Thomas. Thomas was there, right? Thomas was there for every miracle that Christ did. He was there for the sermons. Thomas was there when they p- broke the bread and, Passed out the fish among the 5,000. Thomas saw that Thomas was in the boat when it was rocking in the Sea of Galilee. Thomas heard Christ say, be still, be calm. And he heard that statement as he turned and took the disciples and said, where's your faith? (laughs) Thomas was there when they crawled up that bank near Gadara right after that miracle. And there was that man full of demons, a legion of demons, and saw Jesus take those demons and cast them into the swine. He saw all that. He knew the power of God. And, and of course, he knew that Jesus had been crucified. and, And yet Thomas, after hearing, imagine this, after hearing from 11 or 10 of his best friends, Judas having committed suicide by then, but hearing from 10 of his best friends, the other disciples, that Jesus had appeared to them, and he was alive, Thomas had the audacity to say what? John chapter 20. Maybe you're there. He said, What? Unless, <laughs> unless I see and put my hands on the scars. Here's what he said. Maybe you're reading it. I will not believe. That's why we call him what? Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. So close. Do you know, I don't know your spiritual condition this morning. Do you know that you can go to church all your life? You can sit in a pew and say amen at the right time. You can sing the hymns. You can see God do great things in the lives of others. But you can be that close and still doubt. And so what does Jesus do just for his sake? He appears again. Not only after eight days a little later, he appears To doubting Thomas, and remember what he does, he comes right up to, there must have been that moment where their eyes met, and at that moment, the tender familiarity of God's voice must have smitten him even before God extends his hands or points at his feet. Thomas is overwhelmed by the fact that, yes, yes, this is indeed the Christ, Son of the living God. The Lord takes that moment to gesture that way and holds out his palms and I'm sure points at his feet and Thomas says what? What does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. So there's that statement that comes by the scars. This was the resurrected Lord, yes, this person, this one that was crucified. You didn't survive a, <laughs> a crucifixion in Rome. No one survived that. They made sure that you were dead. And by the scars, the Lord is saying, no, I didn't survive it. I died, but I came back. And do you know someone has said the only thing artificial in heaven will be the scars. A man made scars on the hands and the feet of Christ. You will know who he is. By the imprint of the nails. Uh, Not that we'll ever mistake who he is in heaven. But thank God he did that for you and for me. There's the testament of the scars. And then there's the statement of radical change. Radical change. Do you know that the boldness in the lives of the disciples to me is one of the greatest statements of faith in all of the Bible and I mentioned it earlier, signs of life. As you follow the disciples through the Gospels, what you're finding time and time again is that they're fearful. Even though they're with Jesus, they're fearful. Can you think of a place where they're fearful? I've already mentioned a couple on the stormy sea. They're afraid. That happened more than once. They were afraid, of course. Uh, at the tomb, or the man was filled with the spirits, the demons. Often they were afraid, and often Christ would chide them for their fear. That was all before the resurrection. Something happened post-resurrection. They were changed. This cowering, fearful bunch of runaway disciples, by the way, only one, really stood at the cross. They all forsook him and fled. They were hiding in the shadows, fearful for their lives. One, uh, of course, betrayed Judas, betrayed him, committed suicide. If we were to close the record on the disciples on that Saturday, we would have every reason to doubt the resurrection. My friends, though, after the resurrection, these men all gave their lives boldly for the cause of Christ. Their radical change is a great statement to their faith, how 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 come it is that there was this marvelous change in boldness? In fact, you look at Acts chapter four and Acts chapter five. They are persecuted after the resurrection for their faith, and in and in Acts chapter four, this was the comment of those that saw them. They said, "We noticed that those men have been with Jesus." And they were, uh, they, were, they were really committed to prison, or at least threatened with prison. And what did they say in Acts chapter 5? They said this, you can do what you want to, basically, right? You can, but we must obey what? God. We're not running and hiding anymore. We must obey God rather than men. It doesn't matter what happens to us. What was the, what's the change? What's the radical change or transformation point? It was the assurance of the resurrection. Because he lives, we will live too. He's the first food. It doesn't matter what you do to, to us. We know that this God that we serve is God. He's not just a good teacher. He overcame death. He's the only one we know has that sort of power. He's the only one that can give life. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're concerned about dying, do you know there's only one that can give you freedom from the fear of death? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's alive and lives forevermore. He's the first fruit. That empty tomb became our assurance, the validity for our own resurrection. Because he lives, you shall live also. What a great statement. And these men were radically changed. By the, and this became the fuel for the truth of the gospel as they, as they went throughout Jerusalem, Judea, the uttermost parts of the earth, they carried this truth. This was their first and really only message. We come from Jerusalem. We've served the, the God of gods and King of kings. He is in human form. He came. He never sinned. And he went to the grave. He died on a cross, went to the grave, and he rose again. We saw it with our eyes. And as they went, that was their testimony. We saw him come out of the grave. And he is indeed the living Lord. He has the keys of hell and death. This radical transformation in the lives of the believers. Do you know that that same power that lifted Christ from the grave is available to you who are believers? Quit saying. Quit saying I just can't get over this sin. It's too big. Quit saying I just can't serve the Lord. It's too hard. Quit saying that boss at work, he's just too much. He's always picking on me. I've got to hide my faith. There's ought to be a radical transformation in your life when you realize that you serve a living Savior. Yes. The greatest fear of our lives would be to upset him. <laughs> Not to upset those who hate him, and so that again a radical change. What a great, uh, what a great statement of faith that is. And you might think this, you know, Pastor, that's great. I would have, I would have loved to be alive in those days because then I think I would have greater faith. I mean, if if I had seen or felt the earthquake, if I had seen the light come out, if I had seen the light emanate from those angels' faces, if. I was there and heard them say He's risen indeed. If I had seen His hands like Thomas did, if, if I had then, I think, then I think I would have more faith. I was thinking about these things. Maybe you didn't see the empty tomb, the angels declare His resurrection. Maybe you didn't see the scars on His body. Maybe you weren't there in the crowd of the 500 plus that heard His Sermons after he rose again. Maybe you didn't hear any of these things. But travel back in time before Christ died to a man by the name of Job who had no New Testament to read. Very little of the Old Testament. Job didn't have any daily bread. Can you imagine that? He didn't have any biblical resources. But he had a faith in God that was real. He wasn't there at the open tomb. He didn't walk with the disciples. He didn't see Lazarus come forth from the grave. He didn't see any of those things like us. He didn't see. He wasn't living at that moment. He was pre-resurrection. We're post-resurrection. But you know what he said in Job chapter 19? Here's what he said. Job 19, 25, For I know that my Redeemer, say it, liveth. I know that. And he'd just been through some of the most intense, in the midst of all of his intense suffering by the permissive will of God, he looks up to heaven and he says, I know that my Redeemer liveth. That's an anchor point. And yet in my flesh shall I see God. Worms may destroy this body, but yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and not another Though my reins be consumed within me, we look back. Job looked forward to the resurrection. Job, the patient sufferer, living hundreds of years before Christ, pinned his future hopes on the coming resurrection. We pin all of our hopes on the resurrection that has occurred. What a statement of faith he makes. I know that my Redeemer liveth. A Redeemer is one who's near enough to care. Wealthy enough to purchase back, buy us out of bondage, powerful enough to rescue us, righteous enough to avenge our losses and hurt. And he looked forward to the coming of Christ who would stand with him on the earth because he knew that his Redeemer lived. What a statement of... In fact, he says this, many commentators say this about that portion in Job chapter 19, 23 through 27, he says this, write this down with a chisel, an iron pen He says, though I don't fully understand how it's going to happen. This is, again, way before the Gospels were written. He says, though I don't understand how this is going to happen, I know that he lives. And so I want you to do this. And many Bible commentators, when they understand that little phrase, the iron pen, say he wanted it to be written with a chisel on his tombstone, or at least near his grave, I know that my... Redeemer lives. I do not know why I've lost my children. I do not know why I've lost my health. I don't know why this is going on in my life. But you take a, take a chisel out and you take a hammer and on my very tombstone you write these words, I know that my Redeemer Lives. Yes. Yes. Never a doubt in Job's mind about the reality of a living Savior. What a great statement that is. There's finally the very statement of God. Let's wrap up with this. John 20. If you want to open, maybe you're there already. John 20. And he's, again, referring to this time, he speaks to Thomas, and here's what he says. And he's speaking to all of us. This Bible is timeless. Verse 29, Jesus said to Thomas, Behold, excuse, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Are you blessed this morning? God is speaking to us. Do you have blessed vision? Blessed are they that have not seen, that would be Job, that would be you and I, these events, these uh, really validations of the resurrection. But you've you've read about them in the timeless, infallible, inspired Word of God. Verse 20, or excuse me, 30 And many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But why are these written? Verse 31, these are written, again, Jesus speaking to Thomas. These things are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what the Bible is all about. It's written that you might believe, 1 John 5, 13. These things are written that you might know that you have everlasting life and that believing ye might have life through his name, the only name, as Brother Bell prayed for us, the only name given under heaven, under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. You might believe that this Christ that rose from the dead is the only one that can save you. You must trust in him and him alone. Have you done that? Let's ask the question as we close. What What if your life... Uh, Maybe describing Easter story with punctuation marks. How would you do this? Maybe for you, the story would be told just as a comma. You are here this morning you by the invitation of a family member or friend. And this is your time to go to church once or twice a year. And for you, the Easter story is basically a comma. You stopped your busy life. And you've come to church. You're so excited to get back home and watch whatever your favorite TV show is or get on with life, hang out with the family. For you, the Easter story is just a pause, a comma. A short stop, and then for you it's back to life. The rat race. Maybe for you, like Mary Magdalene, it's the end of a statement. She came with spices to put on the grave kind of to just anointing oils that's perfumed. For, for her, she didn't expect Christ to be alive. She certainly wouldn't be carrying that if she did. So it's, to her, it's the end of the chapters of his life. A wonderful, blessed teacher, but she had doubts. And so it was kind of the end, a bold period, end of a statement. Death for her seemed so final, tear-filled conclusion she was going to the tomb just to celebrate the life perhaps of a dead teacher tearfully she stumbled to the grave but wait she got there is this the right tomb she gathered they found that the period had turned into a question mark is this the right place why are the soldiers dead why who are those two men Seated on the gravestone, a question mark for Peter and for John. What are the clothes doing here? Maybe for you, like the disciples early on, it's a question mark. I'm not sure if this God the Bible talks about is worth believing in, trusting on. Why are the guards gone? Why is the tomb open Why is the stone rolled away? Why did the ground shake? What just happened? Is he dead or alive? And hope begins to rise in their hearts. Then the angel confirms. Their hearts begin to soar again in hope. He is not here. He's risen. Then they see him. And all the questions and all the commas are changed to this glorious exclamation mark. He's alive. One massive exclamation mark. He is alive. No more questions. No more commas. No more playing around with church. If he's alive, it changes everything. So you have to come to a place in your life where either you believe this is just a storybook and it really doesn't matter. And you're here just playing church for a minute. Or we have to believe that as the Bible says and the evidence proves that he is alive. And if that's true, nothing else matters. He's alive. And so everything this God has promised has come to pass. There's not failed one word of it. And one day he will come again and you either know Him, love Him as your Savior and Lord, and spend eternity with Him, or you will spend eternity in a place the Bible calls hell. It's all based on your response to the truth of the Scriptures and the Gospel and your trust in it. Finally, John saw and then he believed, the Bible says in John chapter 20. I like, I like what Spurgeon said, Oh, death in rising from the tomb... He slew thee, he rifled all thy caskets, took from thee the key of thy castle, burst open the doors of thy dungeons, and now thou knowest, O death, thou hast no power over me, death is swallowed up in victory. Yes, I say with Job, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that one day he shall stand with me upon the earth. He is dead, he was dead, now alive, alive forevermore. What a glorious truth this is. Here's a statement. We see it in John 20. Many other signs Jesus did, but here's why it was written. These things are written that you might know, believe, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Isaac Newton, live your life as an exclamation rather than an explanation Everybody this week, wherever you go, ought to know by the light in your eyes, the tone of your voice, the joy in your spirit, the spring in your step, that Jesus rose again. He's alive and he lives in you. What a joy that is. Would you bow with me as we close today? Father, we're thankful for the truth of your resurrection. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you.